there's word going round that I was specifically chosen to deliver this message. And now, who chose me and the reason why is something you can figure out for yourselves. It's a very challenging passage. Um, it's Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 to 6, 9. And in your church Bibles, you will find it on page 1176 in the NIV. It's entitled, The Christian Household, and it's all to do with relationships. Now, I was asked by Andrew yesterday, had I chosen someone to read the passage? And the answer is, no, I have not. Because every single one of you in this place this morning, and those listening online, comes in one category or another of those people, groups of people, that Paul writes to. They may be husbands or wives, they may be children, they may be fathers. I doubt whether there are slave masters and slaves, at least I hope there aren't. But every, everyone, somewhere or other, fits into the categories that are mentioned here in this passage by Paul. So, my decision was that we should read it together as a fellowship. So will you please turn to whatever you have to read from, and we'll read it together. Are we ready? We'll begin to read at verse 22 of chapter 5. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own bodies, but feed them and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, 
Each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, hands up children. Ooh, they've all escaped. Oh dear. <laughs> Have they? Have we got any children in this place? Precisely. Every one of us at one point, some point or other, were children. So you can see how just how comprehensive this is. Um, it might be a bit late for some of us to obey this command, but nevertheless, here it is. Verse 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. It truly is an amazing passage. Um, I found it much more difficult than I thought I would. Anyway, I first of all would like to thank the people I know who have been praying. There are some who always pray for me, and I'm sure you're among them. So thank you very much, because without that, this would never have got off the ground. Even this morning, I'm thinking, hang about, did I ought to say that or did I not? Because it could be quite, um, quite challenging. So I'm going to remind you of a bit of background before we actually get stuck into the passage. The author, Paul, Hebrew name Shaul, was a Jewish rabbi who sat at the feet of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. He, Paul, was set apart by Jesus to take the good news to the Gentiles. The Hebrew Bible was the Bible that Jesus used, and Paul's scriptures were the same, the Hebrew Bible. His theology derives from that source. So I may confidently say Christianity is Jewish. This letter was written at a specific temporal and cultural time. It was written to the Ephesians which was a major city in the Greco-Roman Empire during Roman rule. And Ephesus itself was the Roman capital of the Asia Minor, 
and it was a centre of commerce and religious pilgrimage. And the goddess who presided over the city and was worshipped generated an awful lot of wealth. Remember the story in the book of Acts when Paul went to Ephesus and he caused a riot because he was preaching Jesus. And people from among the Ephesian Gentile population were coming to faith. And he was this poor little guy who spent all his time making images of the goddess Diana was having attacks on his income. Oh dear. So straight away there's opposition there. You remember the, the story of the riot. The greatest Diana of the Ephesians. And Paul was preaching a different gospel. So it didn't make him very popular. The church in Ephesus was made up of some Jews who were resident there and many Gentile believers from this community in Ephesus. They, through faith in Jesus, became fellow citizens with God's people, the Jews. And we know from the previous section of chapter 5 that there were some serious problems with the behaviour of these converts from among the Gentiles. Paul instructed them to renounce their pagan practices and adopt Christ-like behaviour. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, foul language, greed, which is a form of idolatry, were major problems. Paul urged them to follow God's example as dearly loved children, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul's love reaches out to these people as God's love has done and he's instructing them to do away with so much that had been a part of their normal lives. We're going to begin our study by looking at the last verse of the previous section which says, submit to one another or be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ as you do to the Lord. And that last verse was addressed to everyone in Ephesus to whom he was writing. Then he begins to teach them. And I understand from my studies that he was using what was known as the household code, which was a roster of duties for members of the Greco-Roman household. It established the principle which underlies Paul's teaching. However, or perhaps I should add something more there before, it lists, this household code, lists vice and virtues, and it was borrowed by various Christian writers, including Paul, and I would like to mention to you particularly one other example, there are three, one other example of use of this household code. Especially the Apostle Peter uses it. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he writes to husbands and wives. Wives are at the top of the list, and he devotes a whole paragraph to wives. And I found this most encouraging. He writes that Christian wives should accept the authority of their unbelieving husbands 
and may win them for the Lord by the purity and reverence of their lives. Now that is so encouraging for anyone here or who is listening or wherever who is a believer in Jesus and is married to an unbeliever. The very way the wives behave may end up by winning the husbands for the Lord. Now there's encouragement for you. And I was thrilled to bits with that. Not that I have a problem with my own husband, I don't. But some who are listening may. So now we'll turn ourselves to the passage that's lined up for us today. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Um, the NRSV says, um, oof, I've lost it now, that be subject is not in the best manuscripts. Now that's interesting. But the passage does teach that all Christians are under Christ's lordship, both wife and husband and children. And they are to submit to one another for his sake. Now, this is a bit different, isn't it? This isn't a question of the husbands dictating to the wives. But submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for the Lord. Oh dear, Paul was in trouble there because the household codes that he was ostensibly following, he's turned them on their heads. One of the fundamental principles of these household codes was to stress the dominance of the man. So Paul was actually undermining the basic principle of these household codes. Nevertheless, it's worth considering what would have been happening in Judeo-Christian households in the first century. It was quite normal, I think, for a man to be approaching his 30s before he took a wife. And the virgin chosen would likely have been a teenager. For instance, Yosef and Miriam. And a degree of leadership of some kind would be appropriate. This young lady is, is, has to grow up and learn the rules of the system. And a, a husband who loves and fears the Lord will see to it that she's brought up, trained up, whatever, I don't know what you care to call it, nourished, cared for, led in the appropriate direction to be a blessing. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Husbands, you do realize, don't you, you've got a far more difficult task than the women. Oh dear. Let's have a look at this. Paul teaches that the standard requirements within marriage are far more demanding on the husband. He is required to love his wife and to love her, what does it say? 
just as Christ loved the church. Carry on. And gave himself up for her. At an unimaginable cost. What woman would not gladly submit to a husband whose self-sacrificing love was so great? Why did the Messiah give himself up for the church? What does the scripture say? To make her holy, set apart for himself. And then it says something rather strange. This puzzled me. I've never come across it before. He was going to cleanse her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And we're talking about Christ and the church. Why did the Messiah give himself up for us? To make us holy, set apart, special unto him. And then we've got this business about cleansing or having cleansed her by the washing of water through the word. Now this is peculiar. I checked it out and it appears that this question of washing is to do with the procedure of Jewish marriage. The Judean Christian, Judean custom, sorry, start again. The Judean custom of pre-nuptial, before marriage, washing of the bride, who was then perfumed and anointed and arrayed in wonderful wedding clothes. This is the washing. This is what's being referred to. So the Messiah is interested in this. The, this is where he's coming from. He's coming from a Jewish background. Jesus was a Jew. Judean custom of pre-nuptial washing of the bride, who was then perfumed and anointed and arrayed in wedding clothes. The Messiah is in the business of transforming his bride, preparing her for the wedding ceremony. Wonderful stuff there. Washing. How is this done? Through the word. The power of the gospel of Christ when it is received has the effect of both forgiving us and washing and cleansing us from sin. And in Acts 22, it's probably Paul again, says, get up, be baptized and wash away your sins. It is washing. And you may remember that being baptized in those days was not... Um, what is commonly understood by the phrase nowadays. It was self-immersion in water totally. Hence, get up, be baptized, and wash away your sin. And it was symbolic of death and resurrection to a new life. So, back to the Jewish marriage. After the preparation of the bride, she was then brought to the groom's home and introduced to it. The groom's home was quite often 
in those days an extension to the father's house. Those of us who went to Israel in 1992, were, this was demonstrated to us, that there was a piece built on to the father's house so that the son could bring his wife, his, his, his bride. Well, then it says, in the same way, how does it happen to us in the same way? We, through faith in Jesus, are cleansed. The bride has been cleansed through the selfish, the self-sacrifice of the Saviour. The blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. John, 1 John 1 verse 7. <clears throat> if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. Hallelujah. And also Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, set apart, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Pardon me while I turn over. Paul then quotes from Genesis chapter 2. And this is the quotation. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this is just wonderful. This is just wonderful. Husband and wife. The man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And there's a strong suggestion there that that was in perpetuity. Think that one through. Paul says this is a profound mystery. Mystery here is the plan of salvation which God had revealed when the time was right. Nothing to do with mystery religions and all the rest of it. A plan which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles, are heirs together with Israel and members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What a privilege for us. And verse 33, conclusion, each one of the men must love his wife and the wife must respect her husband. Now, I found this interesting. A woman who, or a wife who is respected and nourished in this way, may become a great blessing to her husband. And my mind went to a not often read piece of scripture. And it's the epilogue at the end of the book of Proverbs. And it talks about the wife of noble character. 
Now when you have time, I recommend that you read that passage and you see how the nourishment and the care lavished on this young bride as she grows up brings forth a wife of noble character. I'll just read the last part of it. She watches over the affairs of her husband. Ooh, I like it. And does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honour her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring praise to her husband as he sits in the gate of the city. I don't know what you think of it, but I like that. I think that's good. Right, so we'll move on from there. We've made the conclusion, each, ma each of the men must love his wife and the wife must respect her husband. Let's move on and have a little look at the next passage. Fathers and children. I don't know why it's called fathers and children because it says, obey your parents in the Lord. And I've got a feeling that somewhere in the back of my memory that the wife brings up the child, the father teaches the child a trade. Yes? So the wife has a big hand in this training up of the child. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother. Children, pay attention wherever you are. <laughs> Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment in the Decalogue, with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. See, here again, it's two-sided all the way. Be careful how you train them up. <laughs> right. Um, there's a passage in, a, in Deuteronomy that I found interesting. How to deal with a rebellious son. Um, it's Deuteronomy chapter 21. You might care to look at it sometime. But I would prefer to look at the passage in Hebrews. And of course the Hebrews were the Jewish Christians to whom someone was writing. And in chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it says this. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and he chastens everyone whom he accepts as a son. So when the Lord disciplines us, this is a mark of his care and concern for us. The last portion is to do with slaves and masters, um, and I propose not to deal with that today. You can read it yourselves. Um, there are cultures in which that might still be pertinent, but it's probably not pertinent in our country, at least in the church in our country. So, here's a question for us all. Paul has turned the household code on its head. 
but he's somehow been abiding by the rules and dealing with the members of the household. My question to you is, should the household code, thus reinterpreted by Paul in the light of the Hebrew scriptures, be our guide in today's society? Can we reject it and put it away in the past that was time gone by? Or do we have to pay attention here and now to how we live within marriage and within a family? I leave it for you to think out.